Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. And here we are. I'm very pleased to welcome two new guests to the program today. Dan and Andrew, both of them college professors at an undisclosed Northeastern institution. Following in the great tradition here at the Assembly of Silence, we don't really identify any of us with our full names or a lot of specific details as to our background or our resume, the various things that might legitimize people and cause one to want to take seriously what people say because well there's an old-fashioned notion that it might be uh, the content of the, the actual thought that really matters and not so much the person who says it so in a society that's dominated by the cults of personality this seems like a appropriate counterbalance and it, it brings to mind, I think in one of the Taoist writings, there's something about how, you know, in a just society, people of no particular account would be listened to by even the people at the highest levels because, well, just because you don't have a high position doesn't mean you don't have something worthwhile to say. And conversely, those in high positions don't necessarily always have the most worthwhile ideas. So, particularly in a time of, of confusion and crisis, it seems worth approaching things from this more equitable point of view. I mean, if we can't manage to uh, figure out an economically equitable society, something that we're clearly failing at, you know, we might start in that direction with a more intellectually equitable society. And that would mean, you know, on some level, the internet has, has provided us with this. Everyone has the potential to have a voice here. Of course, whether or not that voice will be heard is the big question. And, you know, typically it pretty much operates the way it always has, with perhaps some exceptions. And, you know, maybe that there have always been some exceptions along the line. It's awfully hard to say what exactly it is that gets people into the public eye. So all this is a long-winded way of saying, uh, here's another episode. <laughs> and uh, this conversation is the result of a long uh, pre-show discussion that went on for several months. The idea... Uh, Dan and I have been friends for a long time. I may as well disclose that. I suppose that's sort of like personal information, but that's about as far as I'm going to go. And Dan suggested that maybe uh, a conversation, including Andrew, would be something that would be interesting. And so we've been kind of kicking ideas back and forth. We were originally going to discuss disaster capitalism, and it took us a while to kind of get around to it. It's, it's mentioned in this episode. But as usual, in the freewheeling mode that seems to be the Assembly of Silence's modus operandi, things just went where they went. 
So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I certainly did, and I think uh, there's potential for a lot of continued discussion along these lines. It's a bit more pragmatic, you know, I guess you could say, than a lot of the other discussions on this uh, program. Uh, a bit less in the spiritual and philosophical domain, and a bit more focused towards politics, which is something that I typically try to avoid. But on some level, it's impossible to avoid politics. You know, everything is a political statement in the same way that everything is an action, even inaction. We don't necessarily have to see it all as, as politics, but it does function within the domain of politics because we're a social being. And so every uh, stance that we adopt, every articulation we make has a political consequence. So we may as well face up to that and just admit that Politics are with us in one way or another, and we have to find some way of dealing with them. Okay, I'll try not to say anything more except the standard. If you'd like to support this program, go to the links in the show note description. Also, it would be greatly appreciated if you would share any of the programs that you find to be of value with all of your social media friends and your actual friends too. And you could send it to your enemies also if you think that perhaps something in one of these programs might convince someone to see things a little differently and you know someone who you'd really like to see things differently. You know, drop a little assembly of silence on them. You never know. Hopefully they'll turn it over a few times before they reject it out of hand. Okay. Enough said. A conversation between yours truly, Dan and Andrew. Something just came up a moment ago as we were doing the kind of pre-show discussion, which had to do with Andrew's take on the meaning of, meaning of academic study, I guess you might say, or how you uh, contextualize that. Do you want to kind of weigh in on that and give us a sense of what it is you were saying? Yeah, that, that I think when we have a college or a university, for example, we divide it up into these parts and we say, here's a department of X and here's a department of Y and a department of Z. And we act as though, you know, science and the humanities and the social sciences, that all of these are just different things, that they're approaching different parts of the world using different tools and they shouldn't really talk to each other very much. I find that to be really wrongheaded because I think that the big questions in life, the things that matter, are things that have to draw on different ways of thinking, have to draw on different traditions, have to draw on a different, um, different histories, in a sense, mm -hmm. and have to look at different things together. And I think that that's the way to actually achieve knowledge, to actually learn things. So in my academic career, I've often found myself bumping up against boundaries of field and discipline. And they say, oh, well, you can't really research that. That's not your field. And I say, well, no one told me that. You know, I think we have to be able to follow, follow the evidence where it takes us and follow our interests where they take us. And I think when you look at 
people who have in history achieved great things and come up with great ideas or insights. They're people who have not been constrained. They don't say like, oh, well, that's not really what my degree is in. So I better just stop thinking about that. Right. So it seems like that is hearkening back to what might be called a classical conception of philosophy, where uh, the realm of understanding is seen as a whole. And it's really a field that cannot be specialized on some basic level. If you want to have a uh, conceptual grasp in the largest sense, then there's no way to parse it out. But, you know, it's interesting to consider that so many other aspects of human life have been specialized, that in essence, our species has increasingly specialized uh, particularly since the uh, dawn of the industrial age. In a certain sense, it makes sense that the same thing would happen within the intellectual space, although obviously there are some real downsides to that. Uh, you might say that there are some real downsides to specialization in general. I think it's a great idea and something that does seem to be increasingly present with the internet, connecting so many different types of ideas. So it makes sense that things would head in that direction. On the other hand, I think there's sort of a war that's going to happen between uh, what we might say, like there's this institutional inertia that where a lot of people are dedicated to specific uh, areas and have kind of carved out their territory, their little fiefdoms, and want to really protect them from any uh, intrusion, right? Yeah. Well, I'd, I don't want to come down against specialization in such broad terms, but I think historically when we look at universities, a big part of, you know, as the name implies, it's about the universe. It's about universal knowledge. And the idea was not that any given person could know everything that there was. It's that you have people with different specializations and they talk to each other and they interact with each other. And this sense that if you are you know, the world's leading expert in you know, legal theory, say, um, I can pick that example because law is one of the oldest academic disciplines, then you might know the most about law. And the person who knows the most about medicine is still someone that you have to consult with when you're making law about medical matters. And then you have someone from, you know, historically, the, the seminary, say, who could inform you about medical ethics and how you make laws about that. So the specialization is still important but the specialization and the cooperation have to go together. And as, and as long as you have both of those, if one person is just an expert in you know, one specific kind of beetle or something, that's totally fine, as long as that expert knows how to talk to people with other expertise. And it, it seems that uh, in some respects, that's the issue that has arisen is that people in different fields really don't know how to talk with each other or have a hard time doing so. And perhaps the communication breakdown is one of the uh, prime features within universities now. Oh, I would agree with that completely. Um, I think I spend a lot of time talking with people from different fields and we just talk past each other and we just talk about different things and we have a really hard time getting on the same wavelength. With Dan here being an exception, of course. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree with uh, most of what both of you have, have said. Um, I, I, I agree that um, there's there's a ton of value to specialization, but there's also a, a lot of value to um, to interaction with, with people uh, in other fields and disciplines. And that in general, we, we probably just 
don't make the effort to interact with with those who speak different languages, you know, figuratively and literally as much as as we should. Um, my sense is is academia. There's sort of a trend um, toward more uh, towards valuing interdisciplinary interaction and that sort of thing more. So in that sense, maybe academia is trending in the right direction and, and, and might even take it too far. But and yet, there there is value though, to to speaking to someone who does share a terminology and jargon and so on. So can understand why uh, you know people are inclined inclined to do that. And when mm-hmm. in my experience, you know, when I've tried to, I actually. Uh, not patting myself on the back or, or anything like it, but I've made some. I think I've made maybe more of an effort to to interact with people in other disciplines than a lot of academics, and it, it's been a struggle. So you can understand why why people don't do that all that much. Yeah, absolutely. It seems to me that you've put your finger on on one of the primary issues there, Dan, because the language barrier we might say is probably not only one of the things that makes it difficult for people to hear what others are saying in their chosen discipline, but it also may at times repel people because the way that language is used can be really radically different in different fields. So we're hearing, uh, you know, right now there's an incredible amount of polarization between uh, some of the, uh, the gender studies world and people who study evolutionary biology, for instance. And to what extent that comes down to an issue of language, I guess, is itself debatable, but it does seem like that's one of the big triggers when it comes to being able to have a discussion between these groups. Yeah, because I think we're speaking languages that have, you know, whether it's an academic jargon or something totally different that's full of sort of markers of our values, markers of our social position and background. And we're trained to hear, I say trained like as human beings, as language users, we're trained to be listening for those in others. So there are so many things that are the jargon of a particular um, discipline or of a particular in-group of some kind, that if you are not in on it and you don't understand its meaning in a context, it then it, it can really easily rub you the wrong way or be mm-hmm. confusing. You know, there's a lot of social science jargon that sounds so like cold-blooded from outside of that. Um, you know, and, and a humanist like me wants to say like, wait, but you're talking about real human beings. And the social scientist says, of course I am. This is, these are just the words that we use for the sake of clarity. Um, right. And that's, that's hard because if you've been trained in that language, you are in that, um, yeah, that dialect even, then it's easy to lose sight of the fact that not everyone knows, knows it the exact way that you do. Yeah, communication is just so much harder, I think, than um, we, we, we realize, right? We all know what's, we, we think that we, we understand our own thoughts and, and we're expressing them clearly. And <laughs> usually our own thoughts are, are more muddled than we realize. And then our expressions of those thoughts are even more muddled and interpreting these thoughts you know, that we hear from others is harder than we realize and so on. So it, it's hard enough to communicate with someone who is speaking the exact same language. So it's, it's much harder, you know, obviously when someone is, is, has a different interpretation of terminology or different terminology, but that doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. And in some sense, maybe the benefits are potentially even larger when someone's got a whole different perspective. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, it does seem like certainly the concept of the university in an ideal form is really undermined by the number of different languages that are competing for uh, primacy, I guess you might say. And 
I can't help but note, you know, one of the things that's often discussed on this podcast are the ways in which what we see happening in the world around us relate to various types of spiritual and intellectual traditions. And so the concept of Babylon is one that jumps to mind uh, in that, you know, the characteristic most associated with Babylon is the confusion of tongues, the inability of the members of that civilization to understand each other. So that, that seems to be something that really uh, has, has infiltrated its way out, not just in the university, but really through society at large. And we see people in various professions and various um, uh, political groups unable to really hear each other. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. And I would say um, when we talk about universities in particular, um, you, you use the word competition, which I think is an important one here. And that is because what there's some combination of reality and perception to this, but there is the widespread feeling of competition between fields and between disciplines. And sometimes at just this very practical level that you need students and you need dollars and you need to convince people that your department and that your program and your field of study is worth it. And that's going on constantly where we have to sit down with students and persuade them to take our classes and not some other departments. But in the broader sense, I think culturally, there are fields that um, feel that they aren't adequately represented in uh, sort of decision-making that aren't adequately represented in culture at large. Um, I'm speaking from the humanities here. I'm sick and tired of everybody deferring to scientific experts constantly and never deferring to humanistic experts. Mm -hmm. That I feel that it's a kind of expertise that's undervalued. And that often then leads to, in in myself and in others, either a resentment or um, an animosity and just like a sense of antagonism that absolutely doesn't have to be there and shouldn't be there, but it is. And that that's a huge barrier to communication because it also means that there isn't goodwill on all sides very often. Well, yeah, that kind of starts I, to... I'm sorry, Dan, go ahead, please. Looks like uh, we have a... Yeah, uh, I'm, I don't know if I'm hearing me with a lag or what, but um, sorry I about can, that. Uh, but by the I, way... Let me just say, I can edit out a lot of these awkward moments, and I will. So okay, uh, don't so, don't worry about no, that. No harm done. Okay. Okay, good. Um, you're going to have a lot of editing. I <laughs> 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 don't know how broadly you're referring. To, yeah. Anyway, um, so Andrew, yeah, is, is going to say, um, so this issue of expertise, scientific, certain types of expertise being valued more highly, um, so I, I suspect, uh, so this, we could easily um, go off on, I, I have our discussion go off in this direction because I, I would guess this relates to this, this broader uh, capitalism thing that which, which we had uh, <laughs> considered uh, being uh, something that we would discuss today. And um, I suspect that you would uh, attribute the, the valuation of certain types of expertise to the fact that the market rewards you know, students perhaps who, who, who uh, focus on expertise from certain disciplines and so on. And so I guess that this issue uh, of different types of um, perspectives and um, viewpoints on campus being treated uh, differently and treated uh, with different sort of levels of 
uh, interest and, and respect and so on is related to the way that those fields are, are treated by the market, which you also mm -hmm. don't think is, is, is a great system for determining how disciplines should be evaluated. Is that fair to say? I mean, I don't know if you want to go in that direction now, but yeah. it's been interesting. Yeah, yeah. I haven't, I haven't thought about that very actively today, but yes, I definitely agree with that, as you put it. Um, what, what strikes me immediately as I start to think about this is that there's a, a complicated dynamic here between what the market values, um, you know, financially, what kind of degrees get you jobs, what kind of departments get massive grants, etc., and the sort of cultural prestige, we could say, or, or sort of philosophical prestige, that if I tell people what field I'm in, they kind of blink at me, you know? Um, and that, that doesn't happen to someone whose field is something that's, you know, more, more obvious, I guess. And so there's, there's a sense in which, yeah, there's more money in this because there's more interest, but then there's more interest because there's more money. And both of those are because of a particular role that a particular kind of knowledge can serve ideologically. Um, you know, I think like that's to take an extreme example, like in the Soviet Union, there is a there was this deep belief that a lot of disciplines needed to be rendered scientific in a way that they had not been. So you have history becoming a scientific discipline in accordance with a very rigid ideology. And this is then particular kinds of research, particular kinds of claims, particular kinds of ideas are supported, are funded. People are given careers for doing them with a specific ideological function in support of the government, in support of the power structures that exist. Um, I'm deliberately using an example from a country that doesn't exist anymore to be not provocative about it. But that <laughs> would be an example of how that ideology um, can determine those sort of values, often with the appearance of neutrality, that someone could say like, oh, well, of course, more people want to study this. There are more jobs in it. Well, okay, but why are there more jobs? You know, you could imagine a world where poets make a lot of money and doctors are poor, you know, that could happen. I mean, it's not about to, but you could imagine it. And if you imagine that, suddenly colleges look a lot different. Yeah, it harkens back to one of the points that's made by Daniel Schmattenberger. Uh, so uh, in our pre-show discussion, we were uh, talking about disaster capitalism as kind of a, a focal point uh, for the conversation. And there were a number of uh, offshoots from that, one of which is this discussion by Schmattenberger where he talks about the kind of unbounded rivalrous game uh, and how that has a tendency to create, we might say, uh, incentives in a particular direction that undermine some things that are extremely important, like uh, appreciation of the natural world, perhaps, you know, is undermined by the monetization of everything. So uh, because there can't be a dollar of value assigned to the sound of the songbirds, uh, it's likely that the various things that are necessary in order for the natural system to continue to support the songbird will not be uh, supported in the same way that other ventures will be. So we see a similar thing within the institution, within the university, we have a, a kind of emphasis based upon a certain unbounded rivalrous game in practice, 
that creates excess value because the way because of the basic uh, mechanism that the society at large is using for assessing value and other things that you know those of us who study them might be cons- might realize are of the greatest value are shunted aside because they can't be valued in those terms mm-hmm. you know it's understandable that that every civilization will have its set of values and preferences and that things will generally be weighted on that basis. So, you know, something's always going to get left out. But of course, whatever it is that a civilization is ignoring and shunting aside, it does so at its own peril. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I would I would caution though, I um talking this way always makes me a little bit anxious that we run the risk of vastly simplifying um what, what comes under the heading of a civilization or a nation or a culture or something like, like that. Because it's easy to say, like, oh well, these things aren't valued, so they're being, you know, cast aside. But they're not being cast aside completely. You know, there are plenty of artists who get funded by the government or by philanthropists, or by the market in a few cases, you know, once we're successful. So it's not, um, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to overstate the case and say there are market forces that provide value to a specific number of, um, just some limited number of tangible commodities that are for sale and everything else, you know, the matters of the heart are completely forgotten. Because that's not true. Let's drill down on that a little bit, because I, I wasn't talking about market forces necessarily. Uh, it was more a generalized observation on the uh, particular kind of game being played, you might say. So if we have an, a rivalrous game of any kind, you know, I, I think probably it is often expressed in economic terms, at least uh, while while the, you know, while there's no uh, extensive shooting going on, it's mainly a, an economic game. It's the kind of mindset of rivalry, which is something I think you mentioned earlier. Yeah. That you know, why can't we have a more cooperative model? Mm-hmm. And you know, to a large extent, it's because of certain on the ground realities that there's a, a pie of a certain size. And different groups are going to get access to some slice of it based on their ability to compete with others. Uh, Clearly, there's an incredible uh, differential disparity between the access to what the pie consists of. So uh, it seems very, you know, we can imagine different ways of things working, but in the particular scenario that we're in, uh, with a very large population and a, and, a, and a relatively limited pie, it's hard to imagine how it would work differently. And as to the oversimplification well, thing, I would just say one quick thing is that, you know, when one isn't an expert on something, it's impossible not to oversimplify any given oh. uh, uh, topic. Uh, so I will continually oversimplify things, and I apologize for that. But on the other hand, I also think that it gets incredibly difficult. One of the reasons why there's a lot of confusion and animus between different uh, fields is because the big picture can't be agreed upon and the complexities of each field in detail are such that it's impossible to unravel things. In, you know, so, so trying to find some kind of common framework 
is always going to be a, a, a process of simplification, of oversimplification. But on the other hand, it might, um, particularly if there can be an agreement to put aside some of the details, it might be one of the only pathways towards bridging some of the distances between different camps. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, that, that does make sense. Let, let, me, let me give you an example then of what, I, what I'm thinking of that I think is a really pertinent one here. And then maybe, maybe we can, um, yeah, well, we'll go from there. But the, um, a lot of people that I talk to um, talk, say, say things, I hear a lot very similar to what you just said about this idea of um, it's competition. You know, maybe it's not nice, but this is how it is. This is how evolution has brought us. Some people would say, like, oh, it's just human nature or something like this. And this is why, you know, for instance, some, you know, starry-eyed left-wing philosophy like socialism is impossible because that's just not what people are like. And this is a very strong argument. This is a very powerful argument that's been around for a long time. And my response to this is always really straightforward, which is like, okay, well, are you in a family? You don't compete with your own children when you are constantly, you know, raising them, giving up of yourself to do that. That is true for all of us who were not raised in a Romanian orphanage, that we have had a direct and concrete experience of utter selflessness based on love. And that's where we come from. And I don't mean that every family is happy or anything like that. But what I mean is everyone recognizes the harmonious family based on love as a way that human beings can interact. And we can say, we can do that. I can willingly give up the last piece of pie to someone in my family every day at dinner, having spent the whole day, you know, being in a bank, fighting over the pie with, you know, rival bankers. So what I mean is we can do all of these things at once, that a person can behave in a competitive way much of the time and in a cooperative way other times, in an utterly selfless way at other times. That we, that to talk about human nature as though there's just one way that we always are just doesn't accord with anyone's daily life, I don't think. So it's not that we have to imagine a different way for things, for people to interact with each other. It's that we have to imagine different contexts in which people could act in different ways. So that, that's the kind of oversimplification that makes me, uh, makes me nervous because it doesn't give human beings enough credit for our complexity for switching between things. Um, I know, Dan, we've talked about this a little bit. Does that, um, I know, does that make sense? Can you, can you add to something add something from your research to connect to that? So I don't know if I'm going to have uh, time to respond properly, but um, yeah, Andrew, you're not saying anything controversial here at all. I mean, it's worth clarifying that uh, human nature is, sure, it depends on context, but that's not just human nature, of course. That's sure. the nature of, you know, uh, probably all animals. Uh, so uh, that we will fight harder for our kin and give more to our kin and, and so on. Um, so uh, I, I'd be thrilled to keep talking about, you know, to what extent is, uh, are, are we cooperative versus competitive? To what extent are we truly altruistic versus uh, selfish? Or do we just care about looking altruistic and how much does that vary? And that's, I think that's a really interesting topic, but I don't know if we want to spend more time on that. But I want to quickly talk about um, Noah's reference to, you know, the pie being fixed and, and note that, um, of course, Sometimes it's, it's a zero-sum game over a fixed pie, and, and sometimes it's not, right? Sometimes we can grow the pie by, by being more cooperative or 
or taking certain actions. And, and I, 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 I'm not sure if, um, yeah, I, I don't know if I could give you references for this claim I'm about to make. Um, but, uh, I, I suspect that there are some, some, you know, sites out there that would show that, that in general, we have a bias toward thinking that the pie is, is fixed more than it really is. Um, that, mm-hmm. that more game games are, are, are uh, not actually zero sum. We we tend to think that we're we're fighting over a fixed pie more than we really are, and there there, there are more gains from cooperation than we than we realize. Um, so I uh, I just I don't know if if Noah would even disagree with that or anything, but because he focused on the zero sum uh, situation, I, I thought that was worth noting. Uh, yeah, I, I do agree with that. Although I think you know, to be more accurate about it, we'd have to admit that the earth does have finite resources and, and that while we could certainly find more equitable ways of sharing those resources and probably more efficient ways of utilizing them, there is basically a a fundamental net energy ceiling to uh, what we've got going on on this planet. You know, there, there may be some strategies for harvesting energy from elsewhere, but I have mixed feelings about economic growth. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not, I think that, um, you know, obviously uh, growth tends to bring about a, a bunch of new unanticipated problems um, in terms of um, environmental issues and, and so on and, and psychological issues even, you know, well, uh, new forms of consumption can cause all kinds of uh, issues we never would have thought about. But um, I do think that, you know, resource-wise, energy-wise, uh, we, the, in some ways, um, we're, we're not, we're not very, um, tightly constrained. I mean, um, but, uh, Andrew, did you, do you want to comment? I, I don't know if this is something you, you have much to say about if, if not, don't worry about it. But if you have comments on this, I'd be curious to hear. Yeah. Um, I mean, only a little bit, I think. Um, I mean, yes, it's, it's certainly true that, you know, energy or whatever we can understand as a finite resource, but I think that there are there are probably more cases than most people think. Dan, I absolutely share your instinct that we have a our bias is in favor of seeing more things as zero sum than actually are. And I think there's um, there's probably a danger of that fact, which exists, you know, objectively in many different forums, of letting that color our thinking even when it doesn't really apply. You know, so the fact that there aren't enough fossil fuels for us to keep digging them up at the rate we're going, you know, for another thousand years or something, doesn't really apply to my personal decision making about energy use, um, for example. So I think that talking about um, that that very very zoomed out scale is one of the ways in which we could be feeding that bias towards zero sum thinking towards. Um, seeing our resources as more limited than they actually are. Um, and when I say that out loud, it makes it sound like I'm advocating more consumption or something, which I'm certainly not. But I think that the, um, the theoretical limit, you know, it's also true that the earth is going to get swallowed by the sun one day, but that's not a reasonable way to be informed by, to, that's not a reasonable fact to inform our policy when we talk about sustainability, I think. So there are, all of these ways in the short term, by short, I mean like non-cosmic, um, that are about distributing resources, that are about managing resources, where 
the ultimate shortness of resources, the ultimate scarcity of resources doesn't really enter the picture. So that's, um, that's the way I would take it. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Well, it strikes me that uh, while it's easy to talk about a, a resource availability in the abstract, the fact is that many of these resources have been secured uh, and are essentially owned and are that, you know, that ownership is protected with a great deal of force. So, yes, you know, the way in which one might hope to redistribute uh, or modify existing systems seems like, you know, unless you have some kind of greater force, uh, you're going to have to negotiate with those who have secured these resources to the extent that they have, because quite often, even they haven't managed to really secure it. They're basically vying mm -hmm. with a number of competitors themselves to keep their mitts on whatever it is that they're after. So, um, so you know, it's it, it, in some respects, I think conversations about resource, uh, we can speak theoretically, but when it comes to what's actually going on on the ground, you know, there's a war going on. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, that is a reality that is far more present than even the kind of global uh, limitation of resource or the eventual death of our solar system. You know what I mean? Like it, there's a, yeah, there's a kind of, uh, there's a limit to what theory can accomplish in the face of the on the ground game being played. Yes, I'll, I'll absolutely agree with that. Yeah, I think that that puts really nicely sort of what I was trying to get at, that it's not a matter of the absolute number of resources. It's about power and about control of resources. So the issue, mm -hmm. if I'm hungry, the issue it has no bearing whatsoever on my hunger. The fact that the, the earth produces, um, you know, enough food, last I looked it up, it was like enough to feed 12 billion people way more than we have that the, the surplus of food globally doesn't matter if the food that is available to me is you know if there isn't enough available to me if the people who are producing and selling it are doing so in an exploitative way in an inefficient way in an ineffective way in a um you know in a cruel way of some sort so i think these are um what we're calling talking about as resource problems, I think are better understood as power problems than as resource problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also think that uh, Schmattenberger's way of describing, I think he calls them multipolar traps, where in essence, mm -hmm. uh, all players would stand to benefit if everyone abided by a set of rules of cooperation, you might say. Yes. But this breaks down e quickly when any individual actor decides to grab something, you know, to break the rule, grab something for themselves and seize an immediate advantage because it forces mm -hmm. all players to do the same. Yes. And then you're kind of in a race to the bottom, in essence. Yes. And it seems like this dynamic happens anywhere where agreements break down. And, and certainly if there's one thing that has characterized recent history, it's the breakdown of agreements, the breakdown of laws, the, the failure to, uh, to enforce laws. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, this kind of pol polarity uh, that we're seeing, the polarization within a variety of different groups could also be seen as a byproduct of a lot of uh, unfulfilled contracts, you might say.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the um the those scenarios, those race to the bottom scenarios. I thought his description of that was very effective. Um, and Dan, you're you're definitely more of the expert here. But what what I find in his very effective summary, giving arms races as an example, you know, that's all very intuitive. And what in part of the Q and A that he was dealing with, he didn't really develop this as much. But he makes it clear, and I think it is clear that not every game theoretical situation has to be like that. It's about the way incentives are structured. So you can imagine, you know, the the idea of someone immediately seizing a short term advantage. You can imagine scenarios where that doesn't lead to a race to the bottom. You know, in you know, for instance, if you someone steals something to have the most, but there is an effective you know judicial system, and that person goes to jail and doesn't get to keep what they stole. You know, in that scenario, you don't have the race to the bottom in the same way. And so the the problem, as he sees it, as I think reform capitalists see it, is how to restructure the incentives so that you can create those race to the top situations. So that you can, um, I've always joked that capitalism is like jujitsu economics. It's about trying to take the force of like selfishness and um, short-sighted thinking and redirect it in a direction that is somehow positive in spite of its best wishes, you know, and that, that seems to be the, the, the reform <laughs> capitalist dilemma. Dan, does that seem right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I, so yes. Um, when these agreements, uh, break down or if there's a tendency for agreements to break down, it just means that the, the punishment for deviating for, from the agreement isn't strong enough or it's, it's not credible mm-hmm. enough, right? So uh, most of the time, it, it's it's going to be feasible to come up with some way to structure the agreement so it's sustainable. Um, inter- certainly, you know, the smaller the community, the more sustainable agreements will be, right? So in a small college, if one department is a bad actor in some sense, <laughs> it's easy to keep them in line and deter them, but international competitions, arms, literal arms races, that's where it gets a lot trickier. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I, you know, I'm not going to say that, that every international agreement is uh, something that can be maintained with the right, ince- you know, there might be limits to, to incentives for in certain contexts, but in general, I, I don't think that, um, you know, these sort of repeated rivalrous games are necessarily bound to be races to the bottom because if we're clever enough, we can come up with ways to sustain cooperation. Uh, you know, you just jujitsu. What did you say? Capitalism is jujitsu economics yeah, or something yeah. like that. Uh, because it's the idea is to somehow redirect our our bad impulses towards the common good, yeah. and our selfishness and short sightedness. So I, I completely and agree. And to with ultimately and to ultimately choke out the opponent. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I didn't think the metaphor yeah. through all the way to the end. <laughs> yeah, is that what happens in jiu-jitsu? We probably, <laughs> I don't even know enough about jiu-jitsu to, to know what, what it means really. But um, yeah, so the short-sightedness thing is different from the selfishness thing because being selfish doesn't, doesn't imply being short-sighted at all necessarily, right? right? If, you're, if you're selfish, uh, but you also care about your future self. But if, if you only care about your present self, you'd be short-sighted mm-hmm. as well, I guess. Um, but 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 yeah, I, I am more optimistic um, that we can come up with uh, you know, um, and we have historically. So do all agreements break down? Uh, no, um, 
but um, the, yeah, there's lots of examples. Our, our agreement, Noah, you sort of, it sounded like you were implying that, in, that agreements um, of different kinds are, are becoming more likely to be eroded in, in recent years. And that's an interesting idea. I mean, anecdotally, Sure, I, you know it seems true, but obviously we're there's a we're exposed to the the sort of horror stories more than we are to the times when agree. You know, it's not news when when an agreement continues to be maintained, right? It's news when things fall apart. So I don't know if it's true that that yeah, we're I think more trouble with maintaining. Yeah, the world is yeah, go ahead. The world is continually in the process of breaking and making agreements. So. Uh, you know, what the overall picture is, is perhaps, you know, and in some respects, maybe the overall picture isn't the thing to focus on because it's always the exception that ends up being the seed of something new. So uh, the idea, I mean, I think what we agree on is that, yes, we can conceive of a far better way of doing things and that having proper incentive structure that uh, contains both uh, meaningful carrots and sticks that are actually uh, implemented when when the rules are broken, that on some basic level, that is the package that would solve the problem. But again, we're faced with the problem of power because the, the present system is something that is enforced by the interests that have aggregated power. Mm-hmm. So the extent to which one would be able to reform in a meaningful way this system would again come down to the same kind of power dynamic. And so the question then becomes, well, where, you know, assuming, which is a big assumption, that we could agree on a particular package of incentives to rebalance the system, how on earth could we get it implemented? And what would be the source of the power that would that would convince the powers that be to allow such a change to occur? That's, that's the big question. Um, you know, this, this segues perfectly to what I was hoping we were going to talk about today with, uh, with disaster capitalism, where we've been floating around those ideas. And um, I guess sort of piggybacking off of that, I guess here's the, the thesis I want to throw out today. And I feel so many of these things that we're talking about and so much of what we were mentioning earlier with some of the campus activism, activism that I've been involved with and things like that, all of this feels very, very urgent right now. Because uh, there's one thing that I've learned uh, from studying history, and that's that when you have certain kinds of crisis, um, crises that look a lot like the one we're in now between the the pandemic itself as a public health crisis and the economic uh, crisis that's following off of that, crises like these always uh, remake the social structure into which they come in some way or another. What's going to happen when this economic crisis is over, when this pandemic is in the history books, things are going to look different in some way. And in particular, there's going to be a different arrangement of power structures. And the question of what that new arrangement is going to be is, as of today, June 28th, 2020, wide open. And that's why I feel this great sense of urgency in talking about these questions, because there have been crises Um, like this are on a bigger scale, that have turned out to be tremendous opportunities that have made the world much, much better in their wake when when power has been effectively rearranged. There are also crises that have been disasters, where the crisis itself 
was um, became an opportunity for opportunistic um, sort of like an opportunistic social infection to sneak in and to make things much worse in the form of a power grab of some sort. So we can look at, I think, for example, the uh, in the wake of World War One, a whole bunch of countries in Europe became democratic republics for the first time. We had genuine democracy on the throughout the continent of Europe for the first time in history because there was a crisis that called into question all of the old regimes. But then on the other hand, we look at more recent examples like, oh, September 11th in the United States was not an occasion to scale down U.S. imperialism. It wasn't a lesson in hubris or anything like that. It was an opportunity for a, an expanding surveillance state, for further military engagement, for the further sort of metastasizing of the military industrial complex into, into everyday life in the United States in ways that like, you know, kids today don't even remember a world that wasn't a surveillance society like that. So like th those would just be two examples that go in opposite directions. Right. And what the 2020 coronavirus pandemic is going to be, I have no idea. But I think we need to admit the possibility that things could get a lot better in the wake of this and try to imagine, not all at once necessarily, but step by step, how we could try to make that happen. That's my challenge for myself and for everyone right now. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, I, interesting times, uh, you know, everyone's, that's the cliche of the moment, right? And, and um, what's going to happen next and uh, how are there going to be truly major changes or are there going to be superficial changes with corporations now paying greater lip service to certain issues? You know, it's, um, I think it's, you know, we could go either way. Um, 1968, uh, there was a lot going on and, and yet, um, you know, did we, and there were some significant changes that occurred during that period that, that did last, and yet there wasn't an actual, you know, revolution, and for better or for worse, right, that the system um, ultimately sort of reverted back to sort of stability, uh, you know, pretty quickly. And, of course, there were other issues that came up in the 70s and so on, but it, things um, calmed down, I guess. But um, so the 9-11 thing, though, just made me just uh, think of a, a question that be curious to get your thoughts on. Uh, so you said 9-11 instead of just made, did it, it didn't cause the U.S. to become less imperialistic. We, if anything, we became more, you know, the surveillance state uh, grew and so on. So did, did Bin Laden make a strategic mistake? Do you think if the goal was to actually get the U.S. out of the Middle East and so on, would that have been more likely with a different administration? So um, I know there are plenty of cynical people who think that the answer is obviously no, you know, but I, I, that the, you know, Dems and ours are two sides of the same coin or, or, or whatever. But, um, I, you know, I don't think the Iraq war would have happened with another administration. And so was bin Laden strategically short-sighted by doing nine 11 during an administration that, uh, you know, essentially, uh, you know, his goals uh, caused, caused the ultimate, you know, it was successful in the sense of terrorizing us, but it didn't, wasn't successful in the long run in terms of deterring the U.S. from intervening, intervening in the Middle East. So I, I wonder if, um, I don't know, that, that's probably too much of a tangent to, to worry about too much, but I just thinking about the strategy, the timing of Bin, Laden, Bin Laden's decision to, to um, make the attack then. But um, yeah, what's going on in the world? Yeah, um, but just really quickly to wrap up, I, um, 
I, uh, 2020, um, how much are, uh, and, and Noah's question of like, how do we get the powers that be to actually make real changes? Um, that's, yeah, that, that's like, you know, the 64, that's, that's, the, that's a big question. Um, and maybe I'll share some more thoughts on that in a sec, but if, if anyone wanted to respond to any of the sort of, uh, stream of, uh, comments that I just spewed out, uh, feel free. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, let me let me take a crack at a few things here. Uh, at, you know, since you brought up the bin Laden thing, it's kind of an interesting thing to think about. And of course, uh, my sense is that when it comes to these types of things, we just don't really know. We don't really know exactly what happened. And we don't really know what motivates the various players. We don't really know what the alliances of the various players are either. But I think you could say that perhaps on some level, bin Laden was less interested in getting the U.S. out of the Middle East uh, as he was in uh, bringing the empire down. So you could say that he would know, perhaps, that there would be retaliation and that that would get the United States involved in a quagmire that would, you know, in the same way that... Because basically, you know, bin Laden came out of the whole uh, the Afghan war with, uh, with the Soviet Union. Right. So the Mujahideen, in essence, you know, played a role, let's say, in bringing down the Soviet Union. I mean, a lot of people uh, would probably point to the fact that they were pretty well uh, collapsing in and of themselves. And so you might make the same case uh, with the United States. If indeed it does collapse, it sure looks like we're we're not doing too well right now. And it didn't help that we ended up spending all of our national treasure on these horrifying and immoral military actions in Iraq and Afghanistan and freaking Syria, Libya, you name it, right? It's a, it's a disaster of unbelievable proportions. And to a large extent, none of that could have happened without 9-11, right? So you could make the argument that actually, if, if bin Laden's uh, intention was to undermine the the future of the United States that he's done a pretty good job. Uh, do you guys want to address any of that before we, we move on? There's a couple of other things I'd like to talk about. I I want to resist the temptation to speculate about Osama bin Laden's motives. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's, that's probably wise. Dan and I just went down that rabbit hole. Damn it, Dan. Yeah, <laughs> my fault. Yeah, it's, it's all Dan's fault, but, but let's move on. What, what, what's next? Well, I think that what we're really getting to here is the question of, you know, where is the power? And, you know, if you're talking about historically something like World War I that Andrew was mentioning earlier, we were really in the nation-state era, and there was a battle over political power. So... I think there's a presumption that similar things are happening now, and I really don't know that that's the case. My sense is that power has uh, shifted quite quite a lot since uh, since the rise of the corporate state, and that corporations, um, multinational corporations, have far more sway over political entities than nation states have over corporations. That seems just mm -hmm. obvious on the face of it, but I would say that we're probably even dealing uh, with something entirely different right now. I think that we've 
gotten to the point where the actual power is in the hands of the information gatherers. And that it's a very specific set of corporations who have aggregated an incredible amount of information about everyone else. And those are the real power players now, is my sense of it. So I think that whatever movement it is that one would hope to um, see brought to fruition, it would have to comport with whatever it is that's going on in the information space, you know, and, and, and what's going on in the information space is a huge question in and of itself, because I'm not entirely convinced that it's necessarily human agency that's making the primary decisions within these organizations. You know, right now, the, the degree, I mean, when you have information aggregation on the level that's presently going on, there's no human capable of making informed decisions with this amount of information. And so necessarily, we are starting to see artificial intelligence. I mean, artificial intelligence is already making the decision as to what each of us sees in our social media feed. And I heard it, I think it was one of the interviews that I sent to you guys. Um, one of them noted, I, I think it was uh, Joshua Bach said that the power of the artificial intelligence that's controlling the feed that decides what it is you're going to see on Facebook or Twitter or what have you is far more than the power of Deep Blue that beat Gary Kasparov in chess. So in essence, we're playing a game with something that's far more powerful than the AI that beat the greatest living chess player in the world. So what does that tell us about our position here? Yeah, I, I like that comparison. I, um, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about a wonderful book. I'll send you the information for it. It's, it's a book called What Algorithms Want by Ed Finn. It's a really good book about- oh, That's a great title. Yeah, um, sort of about the philosophy of how we understand algorithms. And one of its many, um, many takeaways is how, um, and this has been reported on in the news as well, um, with a lot of sort of consumer goods, but the way algorithms um, or, or AIs that are programmed algorithmically reflect, reproduce, and then strengthen the biases of the programmers. You know, this comes up in like silly ways that are easy to point to. You know, the fact that it's only men who ever programmed, um, um, you know, the Siri and those sort of uh, things. So when you ask them that, like where to buy a tampon, they have no idea. Like they've never heard that word because it was only men who don't know what that is. You know, so silly things like that. But at a deeper level, um, this sense of what kind of, um, what kind of information is prioritized, what kind of information enters the self-learning, um, the self-learning loops of the algorithm those sort of things are invisible biases of their programmers or visible biases as the case may be. So the way um, the analogy would be like, if you have a baseball bat, you can swing it and generate way, way more force than your arm, but it's still moving in the same direction in a way that's determined by the movement of your shoulder. So it's bigger, but it's an, only mm. an extension of what you've done in the first place. So there may not be human agency at the direct conscious level of every decision. And of course there isn't, but there is human agency in the programming, in the when, um, 
in the in the design at the most basic level. So I do. So we can point to that. I think so. There are people, and there are particular incentive structures. You know, the the great example about um, you know, they. Um, you know, advertisement algorithms or like YouTube algorithms that put you to more and more shocking and radical content. You know, that's that's a design decision that is being that's made by a person that is implemented then by the AI. So I think we shouldn't we shouldn't let the let the programmers off so easily. Well, it's interesting because uh, the example that you use, uh, I'll just be real quick, Dan, is is pretty fascinating in the context of the information space because uh, there's no way if you're swinging a bat for the ball to readjust the, the, the general thrust of the batter. But in this case, like everyone can notice that Siri doesn't understand tampon. And so it's easy enough for that feedback to enter the 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 code in essence right so on on that level it's a more flexible uh medium and while there certainly are uh, predispositions and biases and prejudices within the uh, coding community it's also the case that a lot of what they're doing right now is figuring out ways to get the machine to configure itself you know which is a whole set of other issues but uh, to some extent, I, I would imagine that some of what's going to end up happening is that the machine is going to make decisions that the coders wouldn't want it to make, you know, and, and maybe the coders will change that, you know, they may try to gain control over that at some point or another, but that'll be a different kind of battle that's going on. And I imagine it may already be going on in some sense. You do see that happening because, uh, YouTube and Facebook, their algorithms produce certain results and it gets the company into trouble. And then they basically have to override those results manually, or then they go mm -hmm. tinkering with the code to try and get the algorithm to do something a little bit differently. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's going to so be that, that's this. That's a good example. This, yeah. Oh, I, I like that example because it, what it points to is what I, like, in my eternal optimism, want to believe. So if, you know, a Google algorithm, whatever, comes up with a whole bunch of super racist results, if we are still in a position where there is public outcry, you know, people pulling advertisements or whatever, and Google says, sorry, we're going to change the algorithm, then that's a sign that there is still democratic accountability to to these corporations and to the, the power holders, whether they're um, elected officials or whether they're the corporate power holders who are closely allied with them. So th this, I think, is an example that tells us that it's not, it's not over. All of these cataclysmic scenarios of, you know, corporate dystopias or something, they're not here yet. You know, we still, we still have our foot in the, we as the people still have our foot in the door with Google and still have some degree of power. The power is not completely, um, completely in the hands of corporate interests or of the information gatherers, as, the, as you put it. So that, well, this is an optimistic note I want to throw away. Uh, I mean, it, I love it when you're optimistic. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we should take every optimism, every little shred of optimism that we can. I think it's a, a great value. But I also would, you know, Dan knows, and I think I recently um, responded to one of his tweets about uh, personal bias. Uh, he had, I think, tagged me as having a negativity bias, uh, which... I'll accept, but I, I think I would think of it as more of a reality bias. 
so then the question <laughs> that I would bring up uh, with respect to this particular you're issue. Not accepting it's a bias. <laughs> pardon? What, what was that? <laughs> If you think it's a reality bias, then we're talking, we're defining, this gets back to the language issue, I guess, but we're defining bias differently. <laughs> right. Being realistic, exactly. I would say. Exactly. So acknowledging that. You know, yeah, that, I think that's an interesting thing to, uh, to, I mean, of course, but, if we're really going to drill into that, then, you know, those are some pretty know, elemental have, terms to try to. If we're running out of time. Can yeah, I, we are. Uh, Six minutes and 11 seconds. So then the question I would just bring up is, uh, to what extent is the power of the people going to merely be able to uh, get Siri to understand the word tampon versus actually produce real tangible changes that improve people's lives? You know what I mean? So yeah, maybe we can get algorithms to get tweaked and what have you, but are we going to be able to get food on the table for the hungry? Are we going to get homeless people in shelters and not just in shitty shelters, you know? Are we going to be able to improve the general well-being of the populace, or are we gonna just kind of have little concessions that are essentially like, you know, Siri, Siri being able to identify something that was previously unidentified? So, can I uh, quickly come out here? It's wild. Yeah. When I hear the echo, my voice is worse. So, um, <laughs> I'd be curious, yeah, Andrew, to hear your take, to hear your reaction. I don't know if you have, you know, earlier you were talking about these being like momentous times and crises presenting opportunity. I'm not sure if you have specific sort of thoughts on how we should take advantage of potential opportunities now. Mm -hmm. um, but I, in terms of the information, uh, those who having have information, having power, um, because they're using computing resources that can beat us at chess. You know, I'm personally, um, I don't know, I still get a lot of targeted ads that try to sell me things that I just bought already, therefore I don't need them again, or they're based on a random Google search. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not too impressed by the AI either. Um, I guess I would also uh, note that, um, you know, we have, we ha Noah, you referred to corporations having more power than governments and so on, but corporations, compete with one another. And, um, you know, earlier we were sort of expressing our concerns about the fact that entities that are ostensibly in competition um, could be better off if they maintain long-term agreements to cooperate. But uh, so to the extent that it's impossible to cooperate in the long-term, that's going to cause corporation, uh, corporations to, to fail to cooperate as well. So if if we, um, you know, maybe they'll do a better job of cooperating than than other entities, but but maybe not. So it, it's hard to to you know to get uh, disparate groups of groups uh, of whatever that are competing at some level to maintain cooperation. So that's good news in the sense that it's going to make it less likely for for big corporations to to, to sustain collusion. And I have to note, since we were talking about academia earlier, uh, Andrew and I, you know, the big question in academia recently has been what are colleges going to do this fall, right? Are they going to open up and to what extent are they going to open up, bring students back? And I, I kind of thought that there was going to be a lot more cooperation and collusion across colleges than there was. It seems like everyone's doing coming up with their own policy and there's, there's not that much standardization across colleges. So I'm um, surprised by the lack of uh, consistency and cooperation there, but that does... The, the good news is it means that these powerful organizations are not 
conspiring to decide everything in a sort of shadowy way. Um, and I think that probably applies to corporations as well. But um, how do we get the power to the people? Uh, God only knows. I mean, my, my basic take would be get rid of political parties um, and, and, and uh, maybe pick random people to be our, our representatives and leaders. <laughs> yeah, I've heard people uh, talk about that. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of wisdom to that. Andrew, do you want to address what Dan just uh, put forth? Yeah, I think the, um, so Dan was saying that there was no shadowy conspiracy between corporate interests that is secretly, secretly running the show. And uh, I think, I think that's true. I think there is not, you know, a headquarters underneath the Denver International Airport where the heads of all the big companies, you know, meet with the Masons and everything. But I think one of the, um, one of the important ways of understanding, no, what's the right way to put this? I think it is not necessary to have a shadowy conspiracy to have a sort of indirect kind of cooperation. And I think that um, the, the key to understanding that is the difference between competition and a genuine confl conflict of interests. You know, if you and I are playing basketball, we're competing with each other, but we have the same interests in that we both want the ball to not pop. We both want the hoop to be there and we both want there to be nice weather for playing basketball if we're outside. So we're competing, but within a context where our interests are generally aligned. And in, a, in an effective market system, you have, you know, the CEO of Starbucks and the CEO of McDonald's are like, I guess they're competing with each other over the, the coffee customers, but they have the same basic interests in terms of how they want the market regulated or not, in terms of how much they want people drinking coffee, in terms of how much, um, you know, whatever kind of policies you want, um, you know, trade policies that they want to help import coffee beans, things like that. So they don't have to be secretly in an anti-market sort of way colluding to just recognize that they have a lot of interests in common. And so what you see is not shadowy at all. Um, it's completely right in the open. You see massive, massive contributions to campaigns. You see huge amounts of money flowing into the political system from corporate interests. And then you see that money flowing right back out. The, um, the CARES Act is a perfect example of this. Um, something, something like $20 billion at least went for fossil fuel subsidies in that act. You know, 539, could that be right? 539 million went to airline industry bailouts um, from, you know, arranged by congressmen who had been bought or who had not been bought, let's say, let's put it a little less cynically, who had had their campaigns in part funded by those same interests. So this isn't shadowy at all. This is just right in the open. And that's, that's what a corruption of democracy looks like. So I don't think you have to be a conspiracy theorist to see it right there. Um, and that's, that's where I think something like the shock doctrine becomes a really powerful understanding of disaster capitalism, that what's happening is things are broken, everyone is distracted, and so the rich and powerful have just made a massive cash grab and they want to make more. And that's, that's the, the danger of what's going on now and what, could, what will continue going on if we don't stop it. Well, it seems like this is a uh, another manifestation of, you know, Schmattenberger's multipolar traps uh, model. You could say, you could say that the game, like basketball, uh, can proceed as that game for so long as everyone is abiding by, 
you know, the same basic set of rules. But as soon as one team, you know, makes the hoop that they have to get it into bigger or says, you know what, we're not going to dribble, you know, then then you end up in the same kind of combative situation and race to the bottom. And I think Dan's point was that, uh, if tell me if I got this right, Dan, that that dynamic is at play within the corporate sphere just as it is anywhere else. And so there are some, you could say, limits on the degree to which collusion will happen in a world that's operating on that unbounded rivalrous game type of model. Is that, that is, was I understanding that correctly, Dan? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that. yeah, you said it very well. Um, and uh, to get back to Andrew's response, um, I pretty much agree with all of that. I would just note that um, some of the interests that the corporations share are, are interests that the general population shares, right? So both McDonald's and Starbucks do better when consumers have more resources, when they have more money to spend, when they have greater demand. So not all of the shared interests are, are um, in opposition with the interests of the, you know, the general public. But I completely agree that um, there's, you know, potential for disaster after disasters. And it does seem like there's a lot of evidence that um, policy responses to what's going on now have just have been, you know, basically corrupt or maybe just explicitly corrupt. And, you know, um, the fact that airlines were flying, uh, I don't, you know, I think there are rumors that there were a lot of planes flying around completely empty because they're required to do that to get their bailouts. And it was, just mm-hmm. sounds, um, yeah. you know, just completely outrageous. But yeah. that's, that's, this is all political, you know, this is a problem with politics, maybe more than, than capitalism per se, right? Um, yes. So, so I, I, see don't know, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Yeah. Another way of saying that, that I think is just to kind of tie it a little bit in is uh, in, in a system of perverse incentives where uh, you have like what you were just saying, uh, ridiculous carrots, you know, where you have to fly planes in order to get credits or what have you, uh, and ineffective sticks where the, the laws just aren't being enforced properly. Well, then, yes, you're going to have a situation whenever a disaster occurs, you're going to have opportunists who find ways of capitalizing on it because there's no consequence for them doing it. They can get away with it. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, I think that what we're really, you know, we're kind of navigating the similar territory now for a while. And what we're my sense is that we're zeroing in on is the question of if we can envision, you know, not even getting to the point where we have envisioned a particular model, but let's say we are able to envision a better model. How do we get it installed when the system has already deteriorated to the extent that it has? Like, how do you reform a system that has lost its ability to enforce incentives? Is that, you know, now that's an oversimplification because it's not, across the board, right? But that's kind of mm-hmm. just the overall gist of what I hear us circling around. Yeah, and I, I would say that that's, um, I would change that slightly. I don't think that the, the system, if we say our democratic structures, they have not lost the ability to set the right incentives. They have lost the will to do so. 
They have in a calculated, systematic way that is not a secret because they will say this out loud. They have decided not to pursue meaningful oversight of the private sector. They have decided to undermine on purpose public infrastructure and to erode faith in public institutions. That is the strategy of the Republican Party in this country. And I'm not saying this in a partisan way, but they're the ones who put it in exactly these terms. It's not a secret. Their plan, what they did after Louis, after uh, Katrina, they said, our plan is to make the public schools so bad that the privatization schemes we want to do look good by comparison. That this is the strategy. And the, what we can do about it, all of the structures are there. They just need to be manned by people who want to do it. They're, the will has to be there to use the power that exists. So what we've had, for example, right now, we have a Congress that is has a limited interest in exercising oversight over a corrupt president. There's some, but there's not enough. And that is directly the result of what voters are asking for. And if voters ask for it, we can do it. And that's why we have a better Congress now than we did last time, why we have more calls for oversight, more concrete proposals for ways to make these markets work with incentives that work in the right direction. I mean, this is uh, everything in that whole talk that, that Schlachtenberger gave was just him trying, it's like he was allergic to the words public sphere or public sector, because that's what he was talking about when he talks about long-form podcasts as though boring, in-depth journalism were brand new, as though PBS <laughs> hadn't been doing that for decades because they're separated from the profit motive. You know, mm -hmm. when you publicly fund these things, they can be isolated from those short-term incentives, those misguided incentives that lead to those races to the bottom. You know, I think history bears this out. I think the policy research bears this out. I don't think it's a secret. I think there are democratic electoral remedies here. And I think we have a really, really good chance of making that happen. Um, yeah, well, that's, I just gotta, that's my I spiel. Just, I just got to exercise my negativity bias here for a minute and, um, and point out that, you know, all of that would, would perhaps work if we didn't have a Congress that was, uh, in many cases, just as corrupt as this administration, right? You know, now you can argue about, I don't know how you like figure out like how much corruption equals, you know, can be compared <laughs> from one group to another. But, uh, but it seems pretty obvious that uh, when it really comes down to it, the, the, the Congress has their hands in the pie in a way that makes their willingness to actually stand on behalf of the people. I mean, look, look at who supported the CARES Act, right? Mm -hmm. Pretty much freaking all right. of them. All of them. Yeah, but so, <laughs> I, think that, I think there is concrete evidence to say that this Congress, you know, whatever it is, the hundred and something Congress is better than the one before it. I think, I mean, just this week, we saw one of the greatest warmongers in Congress lose in a primary to a middle school principal who is a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. You know, imagine that headline six years ago. That's impossible to imagine six years ago. Right. So I think that the will, 
the will among elected officials for just to start with something specific and trivial, fi campaign finance reform that is real and that will hold up in the courts, um, maybe in the form of a constitutional amendment in the extreme case, will for that is demonstrably increasing among elected officials. So it's not an all at once sort of thing. But I think that such blatant corruption as we have now, such a blatant attack on the public, the public interest is an opportunity for, in, um, for enacting the kind of reforms that we need to sort of slowly bend things in the right direction. Well, I, uh, I definitely think that campaign finance reform is elemental. And if, if, we, if there's any hope of salvaging this system, it's got to happen. I am mm -hmm. perhaps uh, less uh, optimistic that we could ever get it to happen because so much of what's happening in this world right now relies on politicians being bought and sold. Sure. That's basically the way, you know, the sausage is made. Uh, the, the other thing that I would want to throw into the conversation at this point, and I realize that it's, um, it's opening up a whole other can of worms uh, and that we probably should wrap it up relatively soon just so that uh, Andrew's able to uh, do what he needs to do today. Uh, and maybe, you know, we could kind of just think about this a little bit and do another segment at some point if you guys would like to. Uh, but the question that I've always wondered about and which has been a theme on this show is the degree to which we can think of human uh, will as being an effective means of producing a desired outcome. So to what extent can we point to historical movements that have actually resulted in the thing that they intended to bring about? Of course, there are some cases where it does work for some period of time, but there's an awful lot that, that really just go horribly wrong. You know, and so it's it's unclear to me that that we can really rely on our own best efforts to bring about the world that we hope for. So to you know, that I think might be an interesting thing to uh, yeah. to to bring into yeah. this That's, conversation. I think that is a whole other conversation, but yeah. it does make me think of this. Um, this uh, question that we discussed earlier uh, regarding bin Laden and <laughs> uh, the timing, right. you know, that issue of whether he, uh, you know, accomplished his goals or not. So did Will, was Will effective for him? But um, I'm just going to comment. I, I, I think, yeah, Noah, you're right that there are sins all around, but um, I think that, that it is, uh, wrong to say that you know uh there's there's necessarily an equivalence or so just because we can't um calculate how uh one type of uh imperfect or you know to say the least or you know corrupt act by a politician uh relates to to others um that doesn't mean we we can't have some clarity on uh, um what's going on and how it compares across the two sides and i do think that it's easy to say, you know, to look for um, things that each side did and, and say, hey, they both screwed up. They've both been bad, so they're 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 equivalent in some sense. They're equally culpable, and and um, so I think it's natural to 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 do that to some extent. But um, I do think that there's there's a strong asymmetry that um, in terms of contributions to the problems we have have now. Um, I think that uh, as you know, Andrew referred to, you know, we do 
there's evidence of 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 one side being more sort of intentional and direct and and wanting you know to um, take actions that are are going to uh, you know fail to serve the public interest because uh, there's an ideological motivation or they think that those failures will will lead to some other success. But um, yeah, so then there's the question of if if we have clear you know failures by one side why why is the electorate not recognizing that and that's a big psychological issue that i'm, I'm kind of interested in but we're not going to solve that one now that but, is um, a topic i would i would be very excited to talk about um dan with with you later yeah or, yeah, or, yeah, or, yeah, you know, yeah. but on the list of future topics yeah, yeah. yeah. That, mm-hmm. that will, but I'll, I'll say i'll say i'll say no more but i i guess i i kind of uh, i didn't say it very succinctly here but i do think you know, there are two sides, and one seen, uh, sinned a hundred times, and one the other side A sinned a hundred times, and side, side B sinned once. And it, and there'll be some people will look at the single sin from each side and say, look, they're they're both jerks. And and no, uh, one hundred to one is you know, there's a big difference there. That if you know what I mean. Okay, well, I don't know what the ratio would be, of course, but um, you know, it seems to me that if you just take a look at uh, two of the biggest policy decisions made within the Congress. Uh, and the role that both uh, both parties played, you know, CARES Act is one of them, which yeah. Uh, yeah, probably yeah. is the yeah. biggest blow to uh, working people in this country uh, of uh, pretty much any policy decision made. And and there was virtually no resistance on the side of the Democrats. There was a couple of post-vote statements made by people like AOC that just really were kind of... Uh, uh, unsettling yeah. the extent to which uh, that wasn't That's what fair. she did with her vote, you know, and it was after the yeah, vote yeah. that she makes the uh, the statement, which makes no. it looks like she's just trying to repair the damage done within her constituency. And then there's the fact can that, I ask you, you know, Andrew, can, I, can I interrupt you actually just really quick? Andrew, do you have a take on that, by the way? Just a, like a um, second response. Uh, short answer, no. Um, slightly longer answer is that the, um, it's, yeah, no, I'll, I'll stick with no because I need to look this up because she voted against it at a procedural stage and then voted for it in exchange for some token concessions. Um, and I don't remember the details now, but um, but yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. Okay, no one did you? Want to, sorry, I interrupted. Were you saying something? Else? Yeah, and the other example is is you know the military budget. Uh, Democrats approved Trump's military budget. They they talk a lot about how much they despise his foreign policy. But they approved his frickin' military budget. I, I just don't yeah. see how, you know, like, I don't see how yeah. much more uh, hypocritical or corrupt you can get. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, no, that's, that's, it's disgusting. And I think that in a sense like that, you can say that every like, mean tweet that Trump has ever made is not as bad as voting for that military budget. But what... Um, I mean, I'm trying to figure out exactly how to articulate this. But I want to point is, out one um, more thing, if you don't mind. I'm going to point out one more quick thing, which is that as terrible as Trump is, and I'm not going to argue that he's not as terrible as he is, and there's all kinds of details to it and what have you, so fine, throw that into one big category. He hasn't started a new war yet. I'm not saying he won't, but he hasn't yet. There's a good chance that he will if he gets a second term, because that's what presidents do. But Obama. You know, Obama got Obama destroyed Libya. You know, 
like destroyed it. It's it's not it's a it's a completely dysfunctional state at this point. Open slave mm-hmm. markets, people trying to get the hell out of there, refugees swarming through the whole area. That's on Obama. Big part of what was going on in Syria, what's been going on in Syria is also on Obama. What else about Obama? Mm, Yemen, right? That was the Obama administration. And he, and, yeah, I'm not, I'm not. and he continued the, uh, the, uh, the wars that he inherited, even though he said he wanted mm-hmm. to stop them. So, you know, it's like the partisan thing just doesn't add up to me. You know, my way of looking at it is that it's really like third party or bust, basically, because it's pretty much one party. They have different styles. I'm inclined to agree with that to a point. Um, So I'm I'm not I'm not going here to defend Obama's foreign policy in any way. And I'm not here to to make any sort of partisan point. But here's what what I would say is um, if you say um, a military budget comes before Congress and, you know, let's, let's say it's a unanimous vote in favor of it or something. What, what it might seem is like, oh, well, then that means there are 435 members of Congress that need to be persuaded or replaced. I don't think that's actually the case because I think what you have is a lot of coordination and a lot of negotiation that happens prior to any actual voting. I think there is a great deal of evidence that talking about the Democratic Party monolithically in most of these issues is um, is to to miss what's going on. So the fact that you know the the runner up in the presidential primary has been Bernie Sanders for two consecutive electoral cycles tells us that there is in in a different foreign policy vision in this different you know genuine social democracy vision that there is appetite for it that is not. The, if not the majority position within the party, then a substantial faction of it, which to me is a sign for great hope and optimism. I think the fact that someone like Elliot Engel is going to be leaving Congress now is a sign that new leadership can um, is an opportunity for a recalibration of priorities among the rank and file. So while I agree with you completely in um, sharing your disgust for so many of these decisions, I I think there is good reason to believe that a serious change is possible in the near future if there continues to be a groundswell of popular opposition to these policies, which I think is growing. And I think there is something to it. I think this week's elections are another sign of that. So I'm not here on behalf of any party. I don't want to defend the Democratic Party, but I think there are elements within it that are much worse than other elements and some that are better. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's true uh, across the board, but um, you know, the question is yeah. whether or not it, again, leads to tangible, meaningful uh, improvement of the overall situation in an equitable way across the population. Uh, yeah. It seems to me that uh, you know, th- th- this question of whether or not we're able to produce the results based upon our own will is is really unavoidable at this point. There are practical considerations in the same way when we're talking about hitting the ground where certain powerful interests have their hands on the resource. In some respects, you could say the same thing has happened politically. And that political mechanism has its own kind of logic. 
You know, so one of the questions that I would ask you um, would be, well, uh, people had a lot of hope for AOC. And uh, mm-hmm. I'd say I, it's relatively fair to characterize her time in office as being pretty mixed right now. And there's a lot of people who are pretty disappointed with uh, the way she's actually ended up behaving. And the question then becomes, you know, well, is it the person or is it the system? Because there are a set of incentives uh, within the political structure that create a certain type of person once you get there. So it's not really mm-hmm. necessarily the person that needs to change as it is the, the, the political structure. And then we're faced with the same kind of problem because it's fine to like get certain people in, but if they aren't going to actually, the system has a way of weeding out the people who we need to be there, you know? Yeah. Right. I mean, it's a chicken or an egg problem, you know? Yeah, you need the right people to change the system. You need the right, the right it's people. a really difficult circumstance, I think, to address effectively, you know, because an awful lot of it is uh, really just on the basis of hope. And I always thought it was ironic that that was Obama's clarion call. You know, it's like, yeah, hope, mm-hmm. you can only live on hope for so long. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think Bernie is basically the same thing. It, it, it's like, yeah, we see that there is the will for some kind of real change. In other words, there's a political base for it. But the guy who is at the center of it, who is the representative of it, has completely failed. Completely failed to stand up, to stand up for his own freaking campaign. And when the CARES mm-hmm. Act came along, did Senator Sanders stand up? No. Hmm. You know, he, he's a guy who will say something, say the right thing at this point, but in a way, he knows where his bread is buttered. He's a career politician. Mm-hmm. He understands that world. He voted for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. Bernie Sanders, the guy who... <laughs> so it's yeah, like, yeah. I think that the problems here are way deeper, way more entrenched than, than we might think. I just don't know that the democratic mechanism is, is working anymore. And like I said before, the question is, where is the power? So, for, you know... You know, yeah, as long as as the uh, as the people can be made to make the choice that the people who really have the power want, then, yeah, it'll work. But if the people are going to make some kind of other choice, mm, probably not because they just don't have the power anymore. That's my that that would be my thesis. uh, And I'd be happy to try to defend it next next time. But I do realize that. I want to give each of you guys an opportunity to say whatever the heck it is you want to say, and then I guess we better wrap it up. Otherwise, we will definitely go for okay. another last word. I've got to run. Dan, take your last word. Uh, yeah, no, I, I'm going to admit to being shamefully ignorant about foreign affairs now, and I guess um, that that says I'm probably representative of a good chunk of the population and being pretty uninformed, and and that's probably... Um, a big part of the problem, right? We, we don't have oversight, and and that's why maybe there are some disasters happening that we're not aware of. And and Trump hasn't started a war, but maybe he should be more involved if things are really going to hell in some of these places. Um, and uh, I'm not uh, very well informed about uh, the Obama's policies there either. But uh, of course, um, you know, you can. I I I think it's possible that uh interventions you know were justified at the time based on of information that was available then and so on and and things might not have turned out as according to plan and so on but um 
you raise some some really good points there. Um, but uh, bottom line is, yeah, we're not paying attention, and uh, that doesn't mean that um, the Trump administration is doing doing well in that regard, of course. Um, but uh, and what else? The CARES Act, yeah. Uh, why why have politicians on both sides supported it? It's a good question. Why do they support the military? I mean, I think that one's easier to answer, which is that you know that's one institution that's still pretty broadly supported across the population. So the political incentives for all uh, politicians to be rough, broadly supportive are, are strong. Um, so um, you know, uh, I think that one's not not so shocking for better or for worse. You know, most people across the aisle are sort of broadly supportive. Um, so uh, I'll stop there. So, yeah. All right, I'll just say one thing. I have no idea if it's possible to act collectively in a way that makes the world better for everybody. Um, I don't know if human beings can do that, but you know, we're, we're all that we've got. So we still have to try. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I think the same way on that. Uh, I, I don't know. There, I think that fundamentally there's an, a heck of a lot more that we don't know. And that's fundamentally, I, I guess, uh, a, a big element of what Dan was just saying. And it's just the truth for all of us across the board. There's only so much that we can understand. I think that to some extent, what we might see as being a threat, uh, where power is aggregated in these gigantic information systems that are overseen by AI, may potentially have some positive outcomes just because of that fact. So we might make, you know, if my sense is that we are being forced into a situation where we're going to have to accept decision-making by agents that are not human. And, and as much as I hate that idea, and I really do hate that idea, uh, it may produce a better result than what would happen otherwise. So that might be something else to throw into the mix. Uh, I also think that in, you know, when you have a game that's gotten to the point where uh, it's in essence, uh, how would we put it, the, the, a predatory expression of socio sociopathy, which I think is one of the things that Schmattenberger said. Uh, it's not entirely clear that, that, um, that doing the thing that we would want is going to produce a good outcome. In other words, like one of the concerns that I have about those of us who have been involved in the peace movement is that in the current state of the world, defunding the military may be a huge mistake. It, it's, it's, it gets back to this kind of pragmatic sense of things. Like, are we actually going to make the world better and our own lives better if we reallocate funding at a time when the rest of the world is getting increasingly militarized? The main thing that I was pointing out before was just what I see as being the hypocrisy from the office-holding Democrats but as to what the actual policy is that would make sense given the circumstance that we're in, that's a separate conversation. So I'm sorry for the long-winded final remarks there. I really appreciate both of you guys coming on and talking about this stuff. There's a lot of complexity to it. I think that we have plenty more to talk about if you'd like to continue, and maybe we can share some notes with each other via email for a little while. And uh, if you guys are interested in coming back, uh, we'll schedule time to do so. But again, thanks so much for, for coming on and having this conversation. All right, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Great. Yeah, thank you so much. It's great.
Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home. <laughs>